So there are 14 verses in Revelation chapter 5, and we will be covering all 14 of them, Lord willing, tonight. Uh, we are at the place where we, see, uh, where we see the seven-year trial and tribulation period begin, not on earth, but actually in heaven. It is there that the Lamb peels the first seal away from the seven-sealed scroll written on front and back. And when the, first, when the first seal is torn, then the Antichrist rides out on the scene. He begins the tribulation period. And we'll see that in our next study as we get into chapter 6. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, talking about the tribulation period, the time of tribulation, excuse me, uh, Jesus said, uh, from, the, from then there will be great tribulation. This is Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And Jesus was quoting a passage out of Daniel that says the same thing. It's this anticipation that the last seven years that this earth is ever going to face are the tribulation period. And the tribulation period starts in heaven. And it is God's wrath and God's anger. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that. When you hear that, that there's this time coming upon the earth where God is going to judge all men and he's going to make all things right, he's going to finish all things up, but it's going to be a time of wrath and a time of indignation, they get the idea that this is an outburst of anger from God. Like God has been patient for these thousands of years. And all of a sudden, God gets in and says, I've had it up to here, that's it. And this outburst of wrath happens. <clears throat> Don't think of it that way. Think of it as a judge who has had someone who's guilty before him, a serial rapist and murderer. And now he's been convicted and he stands before the judge to, to hear his sentence. And the judge out of anger and wrath for his disrespect for women and for life senses him to life in prison. There's an anger there. There's a wrath with that judge, but it is not an unjust anger. It's not an unjust wrath. If you had seen everything that have happened in this world, you would have judged the world already. If you could probably see just the things that people do to people in one night, you might say, that's it. These people on earth don't get another night. No wonder the Bible says that God is more gracious than any man. Meaning that if we were in the position of a judge, we would have judged sooner. But God has held it off as long as he can. Now I want to give you a few scriptures that show us that this time of tribulation that we're going to get starting in chapter 6 is God's wrath. Zephaniah 2.2 says, Before the decree is issued, or the day passed like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. So it's a warning to get things right before it's the day of wrath and God's anger. <clears throat> Romans 2.5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and the impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgments of God. So God's wrath and judgment comes upon those who haven't, uh, haven't received Christ, who haven't become a follower of Jesus. Isaiah 13, 13 says, Therefore I will shake heaven, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. When you think of wrath, you think of God in his judgment being angry with all the evil that man has done. Now the Bible tells us that God loves the world. 
And you would think, well, why would God bring such wrath upon a world that he loves? But the Bible also tells us that men that love wickedness and love to do wickedness, there's a passage that says God began to hate them. There's a point in the rebellion of man and the evil that man does to other people that God turns his wrath against that person. Even though he has loved them, he began to hate them because of their wickedness and because of their evil. Now let's turn immediately to Revelation 5 and look at verse 1. And here we see the beginning of the tribulation period by the scroll being taken by the Lamb of God. And we're going to see what this is all about. Verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now remember, this is a vision of the throne room in heaven. He saw a throne and one on it who was like Jasper and Sardis with an emerald rainbow that was around it, 24 thrones with 24 elders around it, a sea like glass in front of it, a hundred million angels, 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands of angels, it says, were there. These four cherubim or seraphim that flew all around the throne and cried out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and in the midst of all of this, it wasn't just another day in heaven. It was the day that this scroll was going to be taken by the Lamb of God and opened. So a lot of people say a lot of different things about this scroll, which is interesting. I think most people will say that it is the title deed of the earth. That somehow the title deed of the earth, it doesn't belong to God. And, 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 and he had to redeem it so the earth could be redeemed. We'll explain more of that in a moment. Some believe it is a judgment scroll. That is, that as each one is torn, there are judgments going forth, and so this is a scroll declaring the judgments of God, and that God had predetermined them. It wasn't an outburst of anger. He wrote them all down in a scroll, and it's a judgment scroll. Some believe it is a scroll of redemption. That is, remember the story of Ruth. Naomi, who is a, a, an Israelite, moves to Moab with her, her husband and her two sons. They marry Moabite women. Her husband and the two sons dies. And Ruth says, your people will be my people and my people will be your people. They go back to Israel. And through some not, not so, so much coincidence, uh, uh, Ruth ends up with, Moab, with, um, with uh, Boaz. And Boaz realizes that he's a kinsman, a kinsman redeemer and that he can redeem uh, the land that belongs to Naomi by marrying her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so he marries, his, uh, pays for the land, marries her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and redeems the land. And Naomi once again gets the land that she had been cut out from. The reason God did that is because he gave each of the tribes a certain amount of land. The tribe of Judah had a certain amount of land, the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Nephtali. And he wanted to stay in that family. And so if a husband from Benjamin married a woman from Judah and they were married and he died, then the land would not go to her because she's, she's from the tribe of Judah, not Benjamin. So an older brother, this is the law of the Leverite, not the law of the Levite, the law of the Leverite, which means brother-in-law or brother. So one of his brothers would have to marry her, produce a child that would become heir for his piece of property. And that way it would stay in the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Judah. He, was, he wanted to make sure the land stayed with the tribes that it was to be made in. 
So in these rare cases, that was brought about. Some believe that this is a redemption scroll by which Jesus is redeeming the world unto God. Now, amazingly, all three of these are correct. We're going to see as we take a look at the scriptures that a lot of times the problem people have with this scroll is when you say, what is this scroll that's written on front and back and has seven seals? What is it? You're looking for one particular area. However, you find out that it fits all three of these main beliefs. First of all, let's start in the book of Genesis. We see that God created man, created man and woman, created them in the image of God and created them to rule and reign with Christ on the earth. This is something that very rarely is ever discussed, but listen to it in Genesis 1:28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fulfill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, when you have dominion, you are ruling over something. When you are given dominion over something, that means that you are put in charge of it. So God created man to rule alongside of him on the earth. When the Bible tells us that you and I are going to reign with him in the millennium and reign with him even after that, it is a restoration of what God wanted from the very beginning. God wanted a partnership with man to rule and reign with him, which is an amazing thought when you think of it. You and I were created to have dominion and God restores that. Now, somewhere along the line, man gave up his right to this dominion. We believe it's the fall. Adam and Eve fell. Uh, there was a curse on the woman. There was a curse on the man. And there was a curse on the land. But we know that somehow this dominion was taken from men and given to the devil. Here's how we know it. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, it says in Luke 4, 5 through 7, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. He shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, this is a little weird to think about it. So Satan's powers include being able to show Jesus on a high mountain all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and time. And the devil said to him, all this authority, the, the Adam and Eve were created with dominion, which would be authority over uh, all creation. So, and, and we want to think of it that way, authority over creation. He says, all this authority I will give you and their glory for this has been delivered to me. So this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. The kingdoms of the world have been delivered to Satan and he gives it to whoever he wishes. He says, therefore, worship me and all will be yours. And of course, Jesus says, and it is written, thou shalt worship God and him alone shall you serve away from me, Satan. And Satan leaves him for a more opportune time. But Jesus did not say what he was saying wasn't true. Maybe there was some deception here. We don't know. But the basics of it seem to be true. That Adam and Eve, when they sinned, gave up the dominion over the earth and somehow Satan ended up with it. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, it calls Satan the God of this world that blinds the eyes of those who do not believe. 
Now, we're told that on the cross, Jesus made an open spectacle and defeated demonic forces. And so here in Revelation 11:15, so we're going to see the scroll hasn't even been opened yet in Revelation 5. But in Revelation 15, 15, all seven of the seals have been opened. And when the last seal is opened, there are seven trumpet judgments. And the last of the seven trumpet judgments is the, the remainder of the seal, as, as far as I can tell. I heard someone say one time that the trumpet judgments come out of the seal judgments and the bowl judgments come out of the trumpet judgments, but I can't find the connection between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. It looks like the, the ending of the scroll is the seventh trumpet. Listen to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. This is the end. It's in the scroll that is being held in the hand of God, the right hand of God that the lamb is going to take. This is the end of that scroll. Then the seventh trumpet sounded and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Satan said, the kingdoms of the world have been delivered to me. Now upon for the breaking the final seal and the seven trumpets being fired off, the last trumpet says, the kingdoms of the world have now become the kingdoms of Christ and, uh, and he shall reign forever and ever. It makes me think that we not only see this happening here in Revelation chapter seven, but we see it somewhere else that we're gonna go to in a little while. Another very familiar passage for us that actually speaks of this very specific event when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of God. Now let's go on and take a look at verse two. Let's look at this setting. It says, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? We know that angels are already strong. The Bible tells us that. This is a particular strong angel. Some speculate that it's Michael the archangel, which is one of my pet peeves, by the way about having to speculate about every single event in the Bible, every single thing, got to speculate. Who's this strong angel? The Bible says the secret things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us. And we don't know who the angel is. So we don't have to put a name. We don't have to go, this could be Gabriel. This could be Michael. This could be an unnamed angel. This might be the angel we saw here or the angel we saw there. We don't know, maybe. All we know is there's a strong angel. And remember when the angel descended and removed the rolled the stone back and sat on it and the Roman soldiers felt like dead men? This is what the appearance of angels can be. But what does this angel say? Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? The ultimate thing that's going to happen when this is opened is that the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of Christ. Who's worthy to open this scroll of its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open or read the scroll or to look at it. So John realizes the heaviness of this moment. He's in this vision in heaven. Some believe he's been taken into the future. He's actually seen the events. He realizes the significance of the moment. And when the angel cries out, who is worthy? And no one comes forward. John begins to weep because this world would stay under the dominion of Satan forever if this scroll is not opened. 
However, verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah, we know, is Jesus. In when Jacob is blessing his sons, he has a specific blessing for each one of them. And for Judah, he talks about him being a lion's whelp. And so a lion became the symbol for the tribe of Judah. When they were traveling in the wilderness and they camped, the tabernacle was on the middle and they had to put uh, three, uh, yeah, three of the tribes on each side of the camp and they put banners up so you would know where your tribe camped. So you'd walk around and find your banner for your tribe and you camped with your banner. And it said that the lion uh, was on the tribe of Judah. And you can go, you can look up what the other banners were and what they represented connected to what Jacob said. But, but Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion is majestic, right? And the root of David. What would be the root of David? Because David's family tree was to bring the Messiah. But the Messiah wasn't going to be just a branch, but he would also be the root. And he is the root of David. He is the creator of David, but he is the offspring of David. And then it says, has prevailed to open the scroll. So he's done something. It's not just the fact that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, but he has prevailed. There's something that he's done that makes him worthy to open the scroll and loose its seal. And then the, the scene changes. All of a sudden, there's something added to the scene. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So now, not only is there an announcement that the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll, but now there's a lamb that's been slain in the midst of heaven now. Now, we don't need any help, do we, of knowing who the lion of the tribe of Judah is or knowing who the lamb who was slain is. But just to make it clear, in John 1, 29 and 30, this is John the Baptist. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is, him who, this is he who I said, after me comes one who is preferred before me, for he was before me. John is six months older than Jesus, but speaks of Jesus being before him and, and being the Lamb of God uh, that takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that he is our Passover. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. I want to entitle a sermon someday, a new lump. Since you are truly unleavened, for indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He is the Passover lamb. The whole story of the Passover was to show us a Passover lamb who would die and that the, the death angel would pass over us. So he is the lamb that is suddenly in the midst of heaven. Now, this lamb is a little strange looking. And it always cracks me up when people show pictures of these pictures out of the book of Revelation because there's a lot of significance taking place here. These things represent these things. It doesn't mean you aren't reading it literally, by the way. 
And somebody say, well, it's, it, it says seven horns, so it can't be taken literally. No, you, if you know the culture that you're writing in, then you understand that things can be said like this that are still literal. I'll give you an example. I could come in uh, next Sunday and say to you guys, it is raining cats and dogs outside. No, no one here goes, he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking in an allegory. What could he mean? What do the cats and dogs stand for? Why dogs and cats? Why not horses and cows? Nobody treats it like that, right? You know I'm talking about rain, and I'm talking literally. I'm, I'm saying it's raining hard outside. I'm saying it with a little bit of flair. So we're going to see a lot of significance, but it doesn't mean it's not literal. There's certainly times where you don't take it literal, but I'll give you an example, and we have it here. It says, um, having, this is the lamb that was seen in the middle of heaven, having seven horns and seven eyes. And so people paint pictures with seven horns and seven eyes. In apocalyptic writing, a horn is a symbol of power. A ram that has a horn or a goat that has horns. These are symbols of power. They bang into each other. If you've ever had a goat give you a little bump, you know it's got some power to it. And so having seven horns, the number seven is the, is the number that represents God or completeness. So he has complete power. That's what he's saying. And again, it's not metaphorical. You don't have to look at it and go, what is it? Because they knew that, they knew it immediately. And so if you really want a, a description of this lamb, then you would have to describe something that is powerful. You'd want to paint a picture of a powerful lamb. And then the seven eyes, and we've made the case in Revelation that this is the Holy Spirit. Some believe it is the omniscience of God, but the Holy Spirit is sent out from the Father and, and speaks of the Son. And so he has, it says, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And we won't make the case for that being the Holy Spirit again. We've already done it a couple of times in, in, in the book of Revelation. But here we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father on the throne, the Holy Spirit being sent out into the whole world, and the Lamb of God getting ready to take the scroll. Verse 7, this is the moment. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is the one who was worthy. This is the one who could take the scroll. This is perhaps one of the most important moments in all of human history because this speaks of how he changed things by being able to be worthy to take this scroll. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp. So they're going to sing a song now. These 24 elders suddenly pull out a harp. This might be where people get the idea that angels are up in heaven playing a harp. The word for harp here isn't necessarily a harp like we see harps, but something with strings on it and that's played. I like to picture it as, as electric guitars and the 24 elders. I'm joking. I have no idea exactly what these harps are, but it is interesting, and I pointed this out before, that we don't ever see angels singing. We see angels saying, but we don't see them singing. And you're immediately thinking of your Christmas songs. Wait a minute. And, you know, they were singing, but look it up in Scripture. Now, if you can find it, I would love to be proven wrong here. If you can find where an angel is singing, 
I've had pointed out to me that Satan, when it talks about Satan and his body, that his body was made of a flute of, of, of musical instruments, so they have to be singing because of that. And I, don't, oh, I don't know that that's evidence. It's interesting, but I don't know that that's evidence. But the 24 elders do sing. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. The angels are not. We're given the job of the gospel of Christ to bring people to the Lord. The angels support us in that. The angels are more powerful than we are. I think the angels must just be blown away at how much grace and mercy God gives to you. I just think, and what, what God does for us, all of those things. And so the, each of these have a harp and golden bowl, bowls full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. All of our prayers are being held in bowls that the 24 elders who represent mankind, all of mankind, Old and New Testament, stand before the throne of God with our prayers in his presence. Don't think that your prayer will go away. There's a very real way in which it stays. I heard one speaking one time about the physics of speaking and how every word that we say, there's a way in which that word is always around, that it will always be there. There's something about our speaking a word that it always exists and talks about that being before God. It's pretty interesting. Uh, to tell you the truth, my mind got lost as he was talking about the complicated stuff and I started thinking about pizza. But nevertheless, there's a very real way in which our prayers are up before the presence of God. Does that make you rethink your fervency in prayer? Does it make you wonder why Jesus said men ought to pray and not faint and gave us parables about it? The parable of the annoying neighbor, the parable of the unjust judge, in which both of those he said, telling them that they should not stop praying, but keep praying. The Bible tells us not to grow weary in doing good for we will receive it if we don't grow faint. Is it possible we could grow weary and not receive? We stop praying. It's not enough just to pray once. We know that. Now, why not? I don't know. God could have made it where we just pray once and that's it. But God wants us fervent and God wants us continuing to prayer. And, and continuing is something about being fervent. If, you're, if you really care about something and you are really fervent about something, then it is something you do and you do regularly. And if you really believe that God will move when you pray, then you pray and keep praying. These 24 elders have these harps and these golden bowls that are full of the incense that are the prayers of the saints. And so our, we are there in a very real way, in a couple of ways. And it says, and they sang a new song. So here's the idea of a new song. Sometimes you guys are like, I'm tired of new songs. It's all right. We're going to sing a new one when we get to heaven. But we know the words to it. We just don't know, I guess, how it's going to go. Now, let's think about this moment. When the Lamb of God takes the scroll and everybody falls down and worships him, and we're going to read what happens here in a moment, but I want to go back and read a very familiar passage to you. It's familiar to us because this is a passage that I use a lot to talk about the Son of Man being a reference to God. When Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. This is Daniel chapter 7. This is the Old Testament. Listen to what it says. I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the son of man, which literally means a human, son of man is human, one like a human coming with clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. And before this, it says that there were thrones that were set up. 
And so he came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. So as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking this is the same event. You have the thrones, you have the Son of Man coming near him, and when he comes near him, he takes the scroll. It doesn't say that here, but listen to what it goes on to say. Then to him was given dominion. What did he give to Adam and Eve when he created them? Dominion. What did Satan have delivered to him? The kingdoms of this world. What does the final scroll do when the final trumpet is sounded? The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. I think it's the same event. It's the day the lamb takes the scroll and is given the kingdom. Now let's go on in verse 13. I think it's 13 and verse um, nine. It says, they fall down on the ground and now they're gonna worship him. And, and they say, you are worthy to take the scroll. These are the 24 elders that represent mankind. You are worthy to take the scroll. This is their new song. And to open its seals. For you were slain. Why are you worthy? You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. How is it that he became worthy by dying for us by purchasing us with his blood. He became our kinsman redeemer. In order to, to pay the price for the land, you had to be part of that tribe. In order to pay the price for this world, he had to be a human. We're getting much more of an idea of what God was doing by God becoming man. He became human so that he could die so he could take possession of us. It was, it was Ruth and Naomi was the reason that Boaz bought the land. He didn't buy the land for the sake of the land. He wanted to marry Ruth. And so we had to remember, he had to go to another guy that was closer and say, hey, I found out that um, uh, Ruth has returned and uh, they're looking for someone as a kinsman redeemer. And the other guy was like, no, I no. He probably was married, thought my wife would kill me. No way, I cannot do that. And so Boaz was like, well, I'll do it then. If I have to, then, then I'll do it then. But he purchased the land for their sake. Jesus shed his blood to redeem us as our kinsman redeemer, took possession of the land for our sake. And we will rule and reign with him. He, he, he restores our dominion that we have and we are now his and we become co-heirs with him, which is what the Bible says, that everything belongs to him as the firstborn son and we are co-heirs to him. The very land that was taken when Adam and Eve fell into sin is returned by the death of Jesus on the cross as we are redeemed and now the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Christ. Revelation 11, what is it, 11, 15. So this is their song. And um, Jesus has become our kinsman redeemer. Then verse 10, and have made us kings and priests to our God. By doing this, we are now kings and priests. You, men and women, are, are priests. When the Bible's talking about, in, in the book of Galatians, when he's talking about the right of the son to inherit, 
he, he calls the Galatians sons. You are all sons of God. And you can kind of hear the women reading the letter going, how are we sons? What about us? So the next thing he says in that section is, there is no male or female in Christ. We are all inheritors. We are all sons of God in the sense that we will inherit everything with him. He's not clearing up gender lines, as some try to say. He's making a point of our inheritance. We inherit everything. And we are kings. There's royalty. We have dominion. Adam and Eve were given dominion. They were, they were kings. And we are priests. You're a priest. Why, why are we priests? How are we priests? Because we don't need anyone to stand in between us and God. We already have one. That is Jesus. There is one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, who stands between us and God. And now by the shedding of his blood, Hebrew says, we go boldly before his throne. Now in the Old Testament, you could not be a king and a priest. If you were a king, you couldn't be a priest and Uzziah tried and broke out in leprosy when he tried it. If you were a priest, then you couldn't be a king. And he didn't want those two lines mixing. However, in the Old Testament, you have Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. And you have Jesus, who is a king and a priest. And in fact, I don't know, Melchizedek and Jesus may be the same person. I'm not 100% settled on that. That talks about Melchizedek not having the beginning of days nor end of days, right? So there's some mystery there. The only other people that are ever talked about in the entire word of God that are kings and priests besides Melchizedek and Jesus is the church, is you and I. We have now become kings and priests to our God. And it says, and we shall reign on the earth. Now you get the idea. You're a king, you have a kingdom, and you're going to reign on the earth. What did God tell Adam and Eve that they were going to do? Have dominion over the earth. Now, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders that numbered uh, and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Some Bibles translate that as 100 million angels. It probably is a greater number than that. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. It's probably a greater number than what that is because it says thousands upon thousands. There is this host of heaven, the Bible talks about, of angels that are at this moment crying out. Now, they're not singing, right? It says, um, let's read it again, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days on the throne, who is given power and dominion in the kingdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He's worthy to receive all those. And every creature which was in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying. Now, every creature... What does he mean by every creature that is in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and in the sea? What is a creature? Before you say it's an animal, the angels that Ezekiel saw, he said that there were four living creatures. And then he describes the cherubim. 
a creature is you, your creature. Why? Because you have a creator. When you are created and you are living, you are now a creature. So speaking of creatures speaks of the creator. It's a roundabout way for sure, but it says everything that was created in heaven, on earth, under the earth, this would be things a lot. This would be, as it says in Colossians, things visible and invisible. It would be angels and it would be humans. It would be anything that's created. And you say, well, how does creation worship? How, what about rocks and other things that are part of creation? How would they be involved in this? Remember Jesus said, if they hold their tongue, the rocks would cry out. And listen to what Romans 8, 19 and 20 says about the creation longing our redemption. Here's what it says, Romans 8, 19 and 20. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility. That means uselessness. So when Adam and Eve fell, the, the earth was subject to uselessness or fertility when it was delivered over to Satan. Not willingly, it says, but because of he who subjected it in hope. So God allowed Satan to take control of the kingdoms of this world and creation, knowing that he is going to redeem them. And the Bible says that all creation waits for our redemption. You and I have been redeemed. We are saved. We, we have we, a presence in heaven. We are seated in heaven now. The not yet and already. However, all of creation is still bound in those chains. But when this happens, it will be the moment that they are all broken. So finally, it says here in chapter five, blessed blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and the lamb of God forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. As I said, perhaps the most important moment in the history of our world taking place in heaven when the Lamb of God takes that title deed. When people say that this scroll is a title deed, I think they're correct. When they say that it is a judgment scroll, I think they're correct. When they say that it is the, the redemption scroll, I think they're correct. All of these play together for that significant moment that God will take this deed in his right hand and say, it's mine, who is worthy to open it? And the Lamb of God who gave his life for us walks up and takes that scroll and opens it up and takes control. It's the title deed, opens it up and takes control of the world one more. Now, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For those of you who call on his name, for those of you who have become Christians, who have become followers of Jesus. And if you have never become a follower of Christ, before we go, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him pick up his cross and follow me. Oftentimes when we're doing altar calls, we think that the initiation is ours. Yes, I would like to have Jesus as my savior. Jesus, would you come into my life as my savior? And, and Jesus says, yes, I'll come in. Now, that does happen. However, God's the initiator always. No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. And Jesus gave the invitation to anyone. 
If any one of you is weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. If anyone is thirsty, and, and come unto me and, I, and out of him will gush torrents of living water. There's all these invitations from Jesus in scripture. And one of them is if you want to be my disciple, then pick up your cross and follow me. Now to them, a cross was a, a torture device, the device of giving up their lives. And so when you say, I want to follow you, you're saying, I'm no longer going to live for me. I'm going to live for him. As I pointed out last week, Peter, James, and John were mending their nets by the seashore. And Jesus came along and said, follow me. What did they have to do to become Christians? Follow him. Get up and follow him. And if you today say, I want to be a follower of Christ. I want him to be my teacher. The word rabbi in Hebrew. I want to follow his teachings. I want him as my Messiah. I will follow him. I'll stop living for myself and I will follow him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world makes it possible for you to live in all of eternity and one day rule and reign with Christ. And I hope we all have a better understanding of what that means now. Finally, the prayers of the saints. Always before God. Don't hesitate to pray and to keep praying. To add to those prayers for family, for friends who don't know Christ, who are in trouble, we all know people that are struggling. Pray for them. Jesus said, call out to me, I'll answer you. It's nothing new. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Call out to me, I'll answer you. Seek me, you'll find me. Knock and the door will be open to you. The Bible encourages us along these lines. May we be those that lay that foundation of prayer and, and not be that amazed when we see our prayers answered because our prayers will be answered. Not always the way that we want, but God will answer us. Call out to me and I will answer you. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you for this chapter, for the significance of it that we see, for the title deed or the authority that was given to Adam and Eve that had been given over to Satan that is now taken back by Jesus. Lord, what a wonderful thing, this scroll representing and Lord, we do pray as we see in our next study the tribulation period starting and all of the things that it talks about. We pray that you would give us insight, but more than anything, that it would encourage us towards caring for the lost, really loving those who are lost and who need you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.